Book 4, Part 2 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore, Book 4, Part 2. The Cytherian Venus brooded on the sun's betrayal of her stolen joys and thought to torture him in passion's pains and requiquatal for the pain he caused. Son of Hyperion, what avails thy light? What is the profit of thy glowing heat? Lo, thou whose flames have parched in numerous lands, thyself art burning with another flame. And thou whose orb should joy the universe, art gazing only on Lacothia's charms. Thy glorious eye and one fair maiden is fixed, forgetting all besides. Too early thou art rising from thy bed of orient skies, too late thy setting in the western waves, so taking time to gaze upon thy love, thy frenzy lengthens out the wintry hour. And often thou art darkened in eclipse, dark shadows of this trouble in thy mind, unwanted aspect, casting men perplexed in abject terror. Pale thou art, though not betwixt thee and the earth, the shadowous moon bedims thy devious way, Thy passion gives to grief thy countenance, for her thy heart alone is grieving. Clymene and Rhodos and Persa, mother of thy leading Circe, are all forgotten for thy doting hope. Even Clitty, who is yearning for thy love, no more can charm thee, thou art so fordone. Leucothea is the cause of many tears. Leucothea, daughter of Eurynome, most beauteous matron of Arabia's strand where spicy odors blow. Eurynome, in youthful prime, excelled her mother's grace, and, save her daughter, all excelled besides. Leucothea's father, Orchimus, was king where Achenemy's whilom held the sway, and Orchimus from ancient Belus's death might count his reign the seventh in descent. The dark night pastures of Apollo's, Sol's, steeds are hid below the western skies, when there, and spent with toil, in lieu of nibbling herbs, they take ambrosial food. It gives their limbs restoring strength and nourishes anew. Now, while these coursers eat celestial food, and the night resumes his reign, the god appears disguised, unguessed as old Eurynome to fair Leucothea, as she draws the threads all smoothly twisted from her spindle. There she sits, with twice six handmaids ranged around, and as the god beholds her at the door he kisses her, as if a child beloved and he her mother. And he spoke to her, Let thy twelve handmaids leave us undisturbed, for I have things of close import to tell, and seemly from a mother to her child. So when they all withdrew, the god began, Lo, I am he who measured the long year, I see all things, and through me the wild world may see all things, I am the glowing eye of the broad universe, thou art to me the glory of the earth. Filled with alarm from her relaxed fingers she let fall the distaff and the spindle, but, her fear so lovely in her beauty seemed, the god no longer broke the lay, he changed his form back to his wonted beauty and resumed his bright celestial. Startled at the sight, the maid recoiled the space, but presently the glory of the god inspired her love, and all her timid doubts dissolved away. Without complaint, she melted in his arms. So ardently the bright Apollo's soul loved that Clitty, envious of Leucothea's joy, where evil none was known a scandal made. 
and having published wide their secret love, Leucothea's father also heard the tale. Relentlessly and fierce, his cruel hand buried his living daughter in the ground, who, while her arms implored the glowing sun, complained, For love of thee, my life is lost, and as she willed, her father sowed her there. Hyperion's son began with piercing heat to scatter the loose sand, a way to open that she might look with beauteous features forth. Too late, for smothered by the compact earth thou canst not lift thy drooping head. Alas, a lifeless gorge remains. No sadder sight since Phaeton was blasted by the bolt, down hurled by Jove, had ever grieved the god who daily drives his winged steeds. In vain he strives with all the magic of his race to warm her limbs anew, the deed is done. What vantage gives his might if fate deny? He sprinkles fragrant nectar on her grave in lifeless course, and as he wills exclaims, But naught shall hinder you to reach the skies. At once the maiden's body, steeped in dews of nectar, sweet and odorous, dissolves and adds its fragrant juices to the earth. Slowly from this a sprout of frankincense takes root in rich soil, and bursting through the sandy hillock shows its top. No more to Clitty comes the author of Sweet Light, for though our love might make excuse of grief, and grief may plead to pardon jealous words, his heart disdains the schemists of his woe, and she who turns to sour the sweet of love, from that unhallowed moment pined away. Envious and hating all her sister nymphs, day after day, and through the lonely nights, all unprotected from the chilly breeze, her hair dishevelled, tangled, unadorned, she sat unmoved upon the bare, hard ground. Nine days the nymph was nourished by the dews, or haply by her own tears, bitter brine. All other nourishments were naught to her. She never raised herself from the bare ground, though on the god her gaze was ever fixed. She turned her features toward him as he moved. They say that after a while her limbs took root and fastened to the around, a pearly white overspread her countenance that turned as pale and bloodless as the dead, but here and there a blushing tinge resolved in violent tint, and something like the blossom of that name, a flower, concealed her face. Although a root now holds her fast to earth, the heliotrope turns ever to the sun, as if to prove that all may change and love through all remains. Thus was the story ended. All were charmed to hear recounted such mysterious deeds. While some were doubting whether such were true, others affirmed that to the living God is nothing to restrain their wondrous works. Though surely of the gods immortal, none accorded Bacchus even thought or place. When all had made an end of argument, they bade Alcithoe to take up the word. She, busily working on the pendant web, still shut the shuttle through the warp and said, The amours of the shepherd Daphnis, known to many of you, I shall not relate. The shepherd Daphnis of Mount Ida, who was turned to stone obdurate, for the nymph whose love he slighted, said the rivalry of love neglected rouses to revenge, Neither shall I relate the story told of Scython, double sexed, who first was man, then else to a woman. So I pass the tale of Calmus turned to Adamant, who reared Almighty Jove from tender youth. So likewise to Curetes, 
whom the rain brought forth to life, Smilax and Crocus too, transpeciated into little flowers. All these I passed to tell a novel tale, which happily may resolve in pleasant thoughts. Learn how the fountain Salmachus became so infamous. Learn how it enervates and softened the limbs of those who chance to bathe. Although the fountain's properties are known, the cause is yet unknown. The Naiads nursed an infant son of Hermes. Surely his of Aphrodite gotten in the caves of Ida. For the child resembled both the god and the goddess, and his name was theirs. The years passed by, and when the boy had reached the limit of three lustrums, he forsook his native mountains, for he loved to roam through unimagined places by the banks of undiscovered rivers, and the joy of finding wonders made his labour light. Leaving Mount Ida, where his youth was spent, he reached the land of Lycia, and from thence the verge of Caria, where a pretty pool of soft translucent water may be seen. So clear the glistening bottom glads the eye, no barren sedge, no fanny reeds annoy, no rushes with their sharpened arrow points, but all around the edges of that pool, the softest grass and girdles with its green. A nymph dwells there, unsuited to the chase, unskilled to bend the bow, slothful of foot, the only naiad in the world unknown to rapid-running Diane. Whensoever her naiad sisters pled in winged words, Take up the javelin, sister Salmachus, take up the painted quiver and unite your leisure with the action of the chase. She only scorned the javelin and the quiver, nor joined her leisure to the active chase. Rather, she bathes her smooth and shapely limbs, or combs her tresses with a boxwood comb, Cytorian or, looking in the pool, consult the glassed waters of effects increasing beauty, or she decks herself in gauzy raiment, or, reposing, lulls on cushioned leaves, or grass and verdured beds, or gathers posies from the spangled lawns. Now, haply, as she culled the sweetest flowers, she saw the youth, and longing in her heart made havoc as her greedy eyes beheld. Although her love could scarcely brook delay, she waited to enhance her loveliness, in beauty hoping to allure his love. All richly dyed she scanned herself in robes, to know that every charm should fair appear and she be worthy. Wherefore she began, O godlike youth, if thou art of the skies, thou art no other than the god of love. If mortal, blessed are they who gave thee birth. Happy thy brother, happy, fortunate thy sister, happy, fortunate, and blessed the nurse that gave her bosom, but the joys surpassing all, dearest and tenderest, are hers whom thou shalt wed. So let it be, if thou so young have deigned to marry, let my joys be stolen, if unmarried, join with me in wedlock. So she spoke, and stood in silence, waiting for the youth's reply. He knows nor cares for love, with loveliness the mounting blushes tinge his youthful cheeks, and as blush-red tint of apples on the tree, ripe in the summer sun, or as the hue of painted ivory, or the round moon red-blushing in her splendour when the clash of brass resounds in vain. 
and long the nymph implored, almost clung on his neck as smooth and white as ivory, unceasingly imploring him to kiss her, though as chaste as kisses to his sister. But the youth outwearied thus, I do beseech you, make an end of this, or must I fly the place and leave you to your tears? Affrighted then said Salmachus, To you I freely give, good stranger, here remain. Although she made fair presence to retire, she hid herself, that from a shrub-grown covert on her knees she might observe unseen. As any boy that heedless deems his mischief unobserved, now here and there he rambled on the green, now in the bubbly ripples dipped his feet, now dallied in the clear pool ankle-deep. The warm, cool feeling of the liquid then so pleased him, that without delay he doffed his fleecy garments from his tender limbs. Ah, Salmachus, amazement is thy mead! Thou art consumed to know his naked grace, as the hot glitter of the round bright sun collected sparkle from the polished plate thine eyes are glistened with delirious fires. Delay she cannot, panting for his joy, languid for his caressing, Craze distract her passion difficult is held in check. He claps his body with his hollow palms and lightly vaults into the limped wave, and darting through the water hand over hand shines in the liquid element. As though she'd won in hands the statue's ivory or glazed the lily in a lake of glass. And thus the Naiad, I have gained my suit, his love is mine, is mine. Quickly disrobed, she plunged into the yielding wave, seized him, caressed him, clung to him a thousand ways, kissed him, thrust down her hand and touched his breast. Reluctant and resisting, he endeavours to make escape, but even as he struggles, she winds herself about him, as entwines the serpent which the royal bird on high holds in his talons. As it hangs, it coils in sinuous folds around the eagle's feet twisting its coils around his head and wings, or as the ivy clings to the sturdy oaks, or as the polypus beneath the waves by pulling down with suckers on all sides tenacious holds its prey. And yet the youth, descendant of great Atlas, not relents nor gives the naiad joy. Pressing her suit, she winds her limbs around him and exclaims, you shall not escape me, struggle as ye will, perverse and obstinate. Hear me, ye gods, let never time release the youth from me, time never let me from the youth release. Propitious deities accord her prayers, the mingled bodies of the pair unite and fashion in a single human form. So one may see two branches underneath a single rind uniting grow as one, so these two bodies in a firm embrace no more are twain, but with a twofold form nor man nor woman may be called, though both in seeming are neither one of twain. When that Hermaphroditus felt the change so wrought upon him by the languid found, considered that he entered it a man, and now his limbs relaxing in a stream, he is not wholly male, but only half. He lifted up his hands, and thus implored, albeit with no manly voice, Hear me, O father, hear me, mother, grant to me this boon, to me, whose name is yours, your son. Whoso shall enter in this found a man, 
must leave its waters only half a man. Moved by the words of their by-natured son, both parents yield assent. They taint the fount with essences of dual working powers. Now, though the daughters of King Minyas have made an end of telling tales, they make no end of labor, for they so despise the deity and desecrate his feast. While busily engaged, with sudden beat they hear resounding tambourines, and pipes and crooked horns and tingling brass renew unseen the note. Saffron and mirror dissolve in dulcet odors, and, beyond belief, the woven webs dependent on the loom take tints of green, put forth new ivy leaf or changed to grapevines verdant. There the thread is twisted into tendrils, there the warp is fashioned into many moving leaves, the purple lends its splendor to the grape. And now the day is past, it is the hour when night ambiguous merges into day, which dubious owns nor light nor done obscure. And suddenly the house begins to shake, and torches, oil dipped, seem to flare around, and fires aglow to shine in every room, and phantoms, feigned of savage beasts, to howl. Full of affright amid the smoking halls the sisters vainly hide, and wheresoever they deem security from flaming fires fearfully flit. And while they seek to hide, a membrane stretches over every limb, and light wings open from their slender arms. In the weird darkness they are unaware what measure wrought to change their wonted shape. No plumous bands avail to lift their flight, yet fair they balance on membraneous wing. Whenever they would speak, a tiny voice, diminutive, apportioned to their size and squeaking note, complains. A dread delight, their haunts avoid by day the leafy woods for sombre attics, where secure they rest till forth the dun obscure their wings may stretch at hour of vesper. This accords their name. End of Book 4, Part 2